We want that egg to look nice, taste nice. There are machines that can do it. It looks kind of like an octopus, a spinning octopus. We don't have anything like that. We're very much manual labour when it comes to making our eggs. Hello, welcome to your podcast of RN First Bite. I'm Michael McKenzie. That's chocolatier Stephen Turhorst, and later we peek inside his delicious laboratory in the lead-up to Easter. Also, renowned baker and bread fanatic Dan Leopard pops in with some tips. But we begin now at dawn in the cobbled streets of Port Adelaide in South Australia, where I sit down at a long table with 160 other people to mark a breakfast that took place 212 years ago. The singers are all dressed as sailors from Pirates of the Caribbean. Over there I can see Josephine Bonaparte, Napoleon's missus, and she's clutching a grevillea. And with her, Matthew Flinders, because it was in April 1802 that he and French naturalist, cartographer and explorer Nicolas Baudin met each other at a place now called Encounter Bay. You're Matthew Indeed. Flinders. I am Matthew Flinders, sir. All aboard. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Um, you have champagne before you. You have scurvy juice. You even have the water, which I wouldn't recommend drinking. Um, but if you need hot beverage, I have a young wench standing off on the port shoulder. Uh, she'll serve you beverage. Uh, not with a saucer. It's a C-State 3. We don't want to spill. Um, but it should stave off the, the scurvy. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you have some rum there? Uh, Poster's Navy, sir. Would you like a, a splice of the main brace? Just a, a little... Toddy, thank you very much. There she blows, there she blows. Good sailing to you. And to you. Lady Josephine, we are aboard. Just to give you an idea of what was happening uh, 200 plus years ago, and to give you an idea of what was happening 10,000 miles from home, as they referred to this great continent terror Australis, Flinders ship the investigator, well, it was about half the length of your table today. It's not very big, is it? That's about the right number for the complement as well. There were 88 people on board the investigator. So that's it. Welcome to the crew. Welcome to you lot down that end. You're the investigator. And up this end, you are Le Gigraph. And you're slightly longer and slightly bigger, but only just for uh, Captain Nicolas Baudin. So it just heightens the, the sense of how brave these people were, how brilliant they were as uh, map makers, as navigators, as scientists and so on. Although France and Britain had signed a treaty barely a fortnight before, Flinders and Baudin had no idea their nations were no longer at war. So you can imagine the tensions, as our Master of Ceremonies, Keith Conlon, explains. They got a hell of a shock because one's coming one way for the British Empire and Baudin is coming up the coast along the Coorong uh, for the French Empire, and they spot each other and think, what the hell is going to happen next? And indeed they did uh, make sure that they uh, stayed uh, broadside of each other just in case hostilities should break out, and legend has it that some of the younger officers wanted to have a go, but reason prevailed, and they realised they were on a scientific expedition on both parts, and so Flinders went aboard on Le Gigraph on the 8th of April, in 1802, and the next morning they had breakfast, and that's what we're doing today.
My name is Lyndall Lawton and I'm Senior Curator at the South Australian Maritime Museum. What made that meeting of these two explorers uh, so significant in terms of South Australia's history? Well, essentially the southern coast was called the Unknown Coast. So the rest of the continent had been mapped. This was the only part left. And it was really these two navigators that joined the dots. And it wasn't just Flinders. He's often credited with that um, mapping of the coast, but it was a combined effort. So on that day, during that breakfast, they exchanged charts and they realised, A, that it was one continent, it wasn't divided by a big river down the middle, and B, that basically they'd, they'd covered it. Well, let's talk about food because, I mean, that's one of the reasons we're gathering here today and we're commemorating that famous breakfast that took place. But what was the, the difference in the way food was viewed on board a British exploratory <laughs> ship and a French ship? Well, I'm going to get in trouble here, but do the Brits think of food as fuel? They probably change there. Whereas the French, it's, you know, there's a little more finesse and there's a little more sort of, I don't know, attention to detail. But both ships were well stocked with sort of antiscorbatics, so things like lime juice, lemon juice, pickled cabbage, sauerkraut. So they had similar sort of rations in that way. It's just that the French had a baker on board, so they had fresh bread that was cooked every 10 days. What did the Brits have? They had enough bread for seven months, is my understanding, and then they had to rely on hardtack, which isn't very nice. It breaks your teeth. What is hardtack? Hardtack's ship's biscuit, so it's sort of flour and water and very, very dry. So that's so classically French, isn't it? They have a baker on board for the whole journey, and the Brits make do with you know, briquettes of yep. flour and water. Yeah. But they did. They both had gardeners. Now, the gardeners were taken on the ship's to cultivate live specimens and to look after the dried specimens we're going to go back to the scientific institutions but we do know that the French gardener cultivated radish and lettuce and cress so they could have fresh greens which was an antiscorbatic as well with their dinner and they had a butcher too to kill the livestock so they had fresh meat and what were they killing what were they butchering things like goats and sheep and I think the French, and I might be wrong on this, had um, fresh milk as well. So, you know, cows were taken on board. So they met twice. They met once on the April the 8th, 1802, yes. and then for breakfast the next day. That's right. And uh, at breakfast, do we know what they ate? No, we don't. All it says in the accounts, both accounts, is that they met for breakfast. Now, oats apparently was the staple. You just had a fairly solid breakfast, so I guess they would have had oats in some form. But... We didn't really want to serve people oats at this breakfast. It would have been a bit boring and I don't think we could have charged $35 a ticket. So, therefore, we looked at what they foraged and what they took and what they would have eaten at, you know, on other occasions. Oh, Maggie, 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 they have taken you away. I am David Swain from Fino Restaurant in Wollonga, South Australia. David, if you start with Kangaroo Island, what's some of the produce that you were inspired to bring to the table today? Well, the Bodan pig, which we used a heritage pig today, the black pig, the Berkshire pig, mm -hmm. but he brought pigs over and chickens over to Kangaroo Island and left them there when he arrived. It's a feral breed over there now. Right. Uh, the chickens, uh, there are none left, apparently. So with the French lentils that were grown on Kangaroo Island, I did with the sausage today, I used the Berkshire bacon in that. And the kangaroo sausage was just to die for. Yeah, being on Kangaroo Island and the two parties meeting uh, in Encounter Bay, I thought we would do a kangaroo sausage. One, because they carried sausages on board, the French, and they would put them under duck fat in big barrels. But also, it's something that they ate a lot of kangaroo when they got ashore. They needed a high-protein 
food, so kangaroo was perfect for that. I'm not sure back then if they knew that fermented food was very good for them and it kept away viral infections. But um, that's it's a good way of storing it as it's well. It's a very good way of storing it. So they had barrels and barrels of it, so that would last for years really on board. So I did a red fermented cabbage, which we fermented for about five days, which we served with the kangaroo sausages today. Did explorers at that time understand what nutrients and vitamins were within food? I think they must have been. They were away for two years. So they couldn't pick up more sailors along the way. So I think they really did look after their sailors as much as they could. So hence we were served scurvy juice today. Scurvy juice, yes. So we've got orange, lemon and lime juice, which all would have come through Mauritius. And then we went into the first course of Tommy Ruffs. Tommy Ruffs is a South Australian fish that is right through in Counter Bay. So possibly they could have caught fish and ate them or smoked them on the beach, which we did today. And you served them on what? Well, what we served them on was a radish salad. Also, I foraged for samphire because they're all possible that they could have eaten it in their journeys. As a working chef, if you had to be employed on one of those two ships, which one would you go for? I'd choose Boudin's. <laughs> Absolutely. <do> <laughs> chef David Swain. And he mentioned samphire there, which, if you haven't seen it, it's a coastal succulent with the rather fancy restaurant name of sea asparagus. It grows all around our southern coastline, and you can pick it yourself and use it in salads, but do make sure you wash it thoroughly. Otherwise, you can buy it in places like Adelaide Central Market for around $55 a kilo, not a service available in 1802 to Baudin's naturalist, Francois Perron. In Perron's account and Bodan's account, they talk about foraging greens, particularly in Western Australia, and Perron did collect samphire, which is, you know, the French love samphire. And there's this long tradition too, which was established by Cook of foraging for greens to prevent scurvy. And there's things like scurvy grass, wild celery. They also had sweet wort as a preventative, which is um, basically hot water poured over barley flour I think and it's it's like the non-alcoholic beer so that the beer before it gets alcoholic and they, they thought that was very important but I don't think it had any impact at all. And I now realise why it is that the Brits got the nickname of the Limeys. Yes, yes. So it's an interesting story, that one. And I'm doing this exhibition on medicine at sea, so I know quite a lot about the history of scurvy. And they initially started with lemon juice. They realised very early on that um, citrus fruit was good as a preventative and cure. But then they went to limes because the British had the... um, Caribbean plantations. Limes were accessible, they were cheap, but the quality of the limes and the way they preserved them meant that they were far less effective in terms of vitamin C. So they, you know, the Brits are called limeys, but that was actually not the thing they should have been eating. It should have been lemons. They, yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue as well, the lemonies. No, the lemonies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a bunch of lemonies that went over the cliff. Yeah, the sour lemons. <laughs> yep. What we do know is you will not break out into uh, pussy, festery sores on your face or your teeth won't fall out and your gums won't be inflamed and swollen. That's indeed how Flinders' crew knew that Bodan's crew were in trouble because they looked awful as they arrived on the ship. The French absolutely love jellyfish. They're obsessed with jellyfish and things under the ocean. And they collected thousands of specimens and they kept them in liquor. Now, Perron was such a a dedicated scientist that he used to top up 
the specimens with his own rum rations when they ran out. So that is dedication when you're giving up your alcohol ration to preserve a jellyfish. And they used to um, preserve dried specimens of plants in rum casks as well and they used to dry the um, plants in the bread room because that was the driest part of the ship. And I mean the investigator was one of the leakiest ships around. It was absolutely appalling. So they had to be really careful. It's amazing they got those specimens back. And then as a sort of postscript to this, Mauritius played a tragic role in both their yeah, downfalls. Yeah, don't go to Mauritius because it's going to end in tears. Basically, on the way out, Bodan stopped in Mauritius. He lost half his scientists. They jumped ship, which in the end was okay because he had replacements. He had 22. He couldn't get provisions. Um, he lost crew. On the way back, he dies in Mauritius from tuberculosis, is written out of history. On the way back, Flinders has the wrong passport and is held under house arrest for seven years in Mauritius while the French publish their map first with all their lovely French names on the South Australian coast. I mean, he is released after seven years. He does publish his account and the French very diplomatically restore his names to the coast he named first in about 1824, I think. So it was a misunderstanding that led to seven years years of house arrest. Is it not true, I was reading in one of the historical sort of analysis of what happened, that the Mauritians said to Flinders, excuse me, is your name Flander? And he said, no. (laughs) I don't know that story. And so he didn't understand their accent, and so they incarcerated him. Well, no, I know what it was. He was on the Cumberland because his ship had sunk on the way out from Australia. So he had to go back, the porpoise. He'd lost half his specimens. He had to go back, get on another ship. His passport wasn't for the Cumberland. So he had a passport for the wrong ship. And then he got all sort of funny about it. And they weren't impressed with his attitude. I mean, you could tell you have to behave in Mauritius or else they're going to put you in jail or take half your crew. So, um, yeah, that that was the situation. And he probably could have been a little bit more diplomatic. But, I don't know, I'm sure Mauritius is nice, but I'd be careful. Lyndall, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Cheers. You can discover more about that meeting of scientific minds by clicking on the links to Baudin and Flinders on the RN First Bite website, where you can also see the menu. A big thank you to the Adelaide Food and Wine Festival for giving us a place at the table. Now to correspondence, and last week's coverage of the paleo diet and mobile slaughterman has elicited much debate online, with concerns raised over issues like animal cruelty, rates of osteoporosis in countries that don't eat dairy, the independence of our dietary advice, and the average life expectancy of various cultures compared to their fat intake. It makes for thought-provoking reading. However, I do urge you to listen to all the downloadable audio before launching broadsides at us and various passers-by, and then by all means, go for broke. You can find these stories and many more to stir the blood at abc.net.au slash rn and look for RN First Bite under Programs on the right-hand side. Speaking of, here's some tips from someone who definitely doesn't do paleo. Hi, I'm Dan Leppard, baker, food writer and really passionate bread guy. And I just want to tell you a few things about the way to get the best out of bread. Now, one of the things I do... One of the first things I do is dissolve yeast in water. I know the packet says you can just go straight in. Don't do it. Dissolve it in water. You'll get a lighter loaf and a better loaf. Now, the second thing is when you're making white bread, 
add some wholemeal flour. Again, it sounds crazy because you think, I want white bread. But just take out a fifth or a quarter of the white flour, replace it with wholemeal flour, and you will get this huge, glorious, wheaty, nutty flavour. Now, the third thing, if you like your seedy bread, is toast those seeds first. It's really simple. You're preheating your oven anyway, so get the seeds in the oven. Sunflower are essential, but also think about pumpkin seeds, linseeds, especially the golden ones. They really toast beautifully. And something I like, which not everyone likes, are sesame seeds. I think toasted sesame seeds are just glorious in bread. Now, don't use too many. Try and use, say, I don't know, maybe, maybe 50 grams per kilo, so that's like a couple of tablespoons for your you know normal sized loaf that will give you the best flavor you're listening to rn first bite with michael mckenzie with easter fast approaching where else should i take you but to an industrial park on the outskirts of adelaide in a suburb called kilkenny because here lives a chocolatier I look at it like people who go to the circus and go, oh, clowns, how do you become a clown? You sort of find the way. And uh, I wanted to go to France to study, but I came to my decision a little bit late in life. Instead, Stephen Terhorst trained in Melbourne and then with his partner Chantelle Jardina returned to South Australia to design chocolates prized for their adventurous flavours and intricacy. And in fact, these chocolates are just like family because that's who they're named after. For example... Eloise. And Stephen, is Eloise in the building? She's not in the building. She's actually our second in charge at our shop. And she's also Chantelle's sister. So when you name a chocolate that you created after a member of the family, are you trying to encapsulate the personality of that person within the chocolate? Uh, Initially, that's how it started out. And so if you look at our Annika chocolate, it's named after my mother. She's half Dutch and half German. So we've got a layer of Dutch spice ganache and a layer of German marzipan. So we do try and, you know, Chantelle is the chili chocolate. She's a bit fiery. My friend Josephine, she's our fig and red wine chocolate. Every now and then uh, it's hard as well because sometimes you want to name a chocolate after a friend uh, and the name's just not quite sexy enough. And that's a bit hard. Or you have guys come in going... Can I have the Gary? Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to eat a, a Gary chocolate. I'm no, not I sure. don't either. No, no. I mean, no, no offence to Gary. No, I'm sure Gary's a nice guy. Yeah, but, but I don't want him in my mouth. No, that's right. <laughs> nice. Thanks. <laughs> so I followed Stephen through a couple of rooms now into a room with the most delicious aroma. So this is my baby. This is a uh, enrobing and tempering machine. Enrobing. So enrobing basically means coating in chocolate. It's a it's a fancy French word. We all love using. I it. love it. I think it's, it's a beautiful great. word, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So enrobing just means to put that fine layer of chocolate on the outside of a, a handmade filling. So when I lick it, that's disrobing. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Pretty much. Mm. So if you take a, a fresh chocolate and you coat it or enrobe it too quickly then the moisture within the chocolate will try and balance with the moisture without, and that's when you'll get weeping chocolates or cracks and things like that. So we attach this belt to it, and it actually coats all of our individual chocolates with a fine layer of chocolate. Just describe what this machine looks like. 
kind of like an ugly Dalek crossed with a TARDIS. <laughs> so it's a stainless steel unit. Uh, it's got a big mixing bowl in the middle that holds about 20 to 30 kilos of melted chocolate, which rotates. Uh, there's a nozzle that has chocolate running out of it. Uh, the chocolate in the tank is heated to about 45. It goes up through a refrigerated Archimedes screw, and then the chocolate that comes out of the nozzle is tempered. So by tempered we mean the crystals within the chocolate have been aligned. So once uh, it goes on to our filling, uh, it's got a nice shine to it and a nice snap and it's got a lovely texture. There's a couple of things I need to ask you about there. The Archimedes screw. Why did I know you were going to say that? I love the word and I don't know what it is. But if you didn't have the Archimedes screw, would it the chocolate still temper? It wouldn't temper properly, no. So right. it, uh, as the chocolate goes up and then comes back down through the Archimedes screw, that's where the refrigeration occurs. So it's the mixing of the hot and cold chocolate uh, that then can allow it to achieve proper crystallisation. In fact, Stephen has it pretty right. The Archimedes screw has been attributed to that famous Greek scientist, mathematician and engineer, but it could also have its roots in the Assyrian culture of some 350 years earlier. Essentially, it's a screw with a very wide thread that fits in a cylinder, and it was first used to move irrigation water from one level to another. But in this case, the chocolate is being cooled as it moves up the thread to arrive at the top fully tempered and tempering that is the art to your profession isn't it absolutely yeah Yeah. apart from balancing all your flavors um if you've ever seen a chocolate that's gone slightly white it's bloomed it wouldn't have been properly tempered or it's come out of temper because heat's been introduced to it at some point so blooming it's all based on the chocolate heating up and then the fat that's inherent in the chocolate separating and coming out to the top of the product. So in high quality Kuvitra products like we work with, it'll be cocoa fat. In the lower quality products, it'll be vegetable fat, but they normally put so many emulsifiers into it that you don't get that bloom, your chocolate just goes soft. Kuvitra? Kuvitra, it's something that we respect in Australia, but it's not a law in Australia. It refers to the amount of cocoa solids within a chocolate product. In Europe, it's law. So there are certain amounts of cocoa solids in the varying types of chocolate that allow it to be a high-quality chocolate. So Kuvitra, let's say we're talking about a dark chocolate. The minimum would be 53% cocoa solids. Mm -hmm. Then you're allowed to call it a Kuvitra dark chocolate for it to be high-quality. If you're looking at a milk chocolate with 26% cocoa solids, it's not a Kuvitra, it's just chocolate. It needs to be around... 31 to 32% in a milk chocolate. So I think we've got the language of chocolatiering pretty much down now, haven't we? We've got tempering, blooming, enrobement and couverture all taken care of. So what about the taste? Because looking pretty is one thing, but if you're going to pay a lot more for handmade chocolate, the payoff has to be in the mouth. My heritage is Dutch. I like triple salted licorice. You know, I don't want to eat a chocolate and think the last flavour on my palate was sugar. The last flavour is supposed to be chocolate, you know, or a hint of the filling and chocolate, you know, and it, it should linger on your palate for possibly up to 20 minutes if you don't have a drink or anything like that afterwards. So we have our centres sitting, waiting to be enrobed. This is a layer of blood orange pat de foy and cardamom ganache. 
blood orange, you said? Yes, it's similar to a jelly. Right. We don't like to use the word jelly. We use the French term pat de foie simply because jelly has the connotations of gelatin, which is an animal derivative. We set it with pectin, which comes naturally from fruit. So that's why we follow the, the, the European lines of naming our product to pat de foie. Okay, here I go. It's absolutely delicious and the textures work so well together. Chantel has made this whole new configuration of chocolate and honeycomb and she's breaking it with a rather large knife. Is that really satisfying? Yes, it is actually. (laughs) And what I'm seeing there, is that the usual kind of honeycomb we'd see in commercial chocolate? This is a bit different. This honeycomb is made with real honey. So if you look on the back of some of the industrial honeycombs, you won't see the word honey because it's, it's just a lot more expensive to use. So we use a local mangrove honey made here in South Australia. Can I have a little piece to eat? Absolutely. You're very kind, thank you. Chantel came up with this great idea of freeze-dried banana and black pepper. Come on, freeze-dried banana and black pepper. What's going on there? But you eat the two together with a milk chocolate or a white chocolate, and it's exceptional. Or strawberry and pink peppercorn. Beautiful. So in Europe, there's actually more of a tradition with chocolatiers to actually accompany their chocolates. They have breakfast pastries and also gattos. Well, I've just tasted the inside of one of the chocolates, and it was the blood orange with the ganache. Yeah. If I was buying that fully enrobed, see how I'm, I'm down with the kids now. Um, if I was buying that fully enrobed in, in Stephen's chocolate, what kind of pastry would you suggest go with that? I would probably go with uh, one of our lighter, fruitier cakes, like our lemon lust. And would I have this for breakfast? <laughs> yeah, definitely, if, especially if you want to be like the true French... You're quite good at what you do, aren't you? I enjoy what I do. I own a chocolate shop and I make people happy. Even if I'm having a stressful day, there's always that thought in the back of my mind. And, you know, it's satisfying when someone eats one of your products and they taste something they haven't tried before. You know, that little pause when they're stepping away or when they're eating. It's, it's, yeah, it's delightful. I love it. And I know Chantel does as well. Do you still, when you make a new chocolate from scratch, get that little boy thrill when you put it in your mouth? Yeah, I do, actually. And for me, one of the other thrills is when I've finished making a lot of chocolate in a mould and I turn it out, I snap it out, and they all pop out and they're shiny and they've got a lovely pattern on them, I still get excited about doing that. You know, Chantel will say to me, get one of the other staff to do it, you need to use your time better. And I'm like, yeah, but I like this. (laughs) I like to think that I have a little bit of art in my soul and I put it out through chocolate. Stephen Terhorst cracking on with his eggs and other delectables. And much of the music in the story comes from Icelandic band Sigur Ross, who Stephen loves to listen to whilst working with his Archimedes screw. Stephen returns next week with a tip for using the microwave to temper chocolate. That's in the midst of our Easter program on carbon-neutral hot cross buns. And we also meet brother John May, who at 84 years old is the last Jesuit to be making sacramental wine. And I've even actually tasted the altar wine, which they sell in Cana of Galilee, where the Lord changed the water into wine. I prefer ours. RN First Bite is produced by Maria Tickle, polished by Kerry Dell. I'm Michael McKenzie. Talk to you soon.